0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Tired in the middle of not my hometown. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: why are you on the road?
0: I am coming back from the Geological Society of America meeting um, that was in Indianapolis that... I chose to drive to, mostly because I had a lot of uh, books on tape I wanted to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: always a good read. That and uh, catching up on podcasts.
0: Right. Yes, exactly. Um, I just actually just flip flop back and forth between those two things all the way. Um, actually, that's, that's not the only reason. I'm trying to get back in time to teach class tomorrow, which there was no way was going to happen uh, if I flew. I couldn't get back because my student had a poster till the very end of GSA today I didn't walk out of the building till six <laughs> and for the first time I think it's the first time I was actually there I had a meeting um sort of pre the very first day so I've been in Indianapolis since Saturday
1: from the beginning to the end yeah cover to cover.
0: that is right <laughs> and I got my first Airbnb this is a big week for me <laughs>
1: That is. Did you have a good experience? <laughs> I did.
0: It was amazing. Um, I had this awesome apartment, like a studio little apartment that was, it was about a mile from the convention center. So I still drove because the reason that I drove in the first place was I lugged a bunch of OU equipment up with me. So like the booth and everything. Um, <laughs> oh, the e- booth. Yeah, the <laughs> booth. <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so i didn't i didn't walk um but it was super awesome man i had my own little apartment and of course i was hardly ever in there but it was half the price of the conference hotels
1: that's interesting i'm gonna i'm going to have to look into this more for conferences that mm, i go to
0: mm-hmm. all the ou students they got a big house and so almost every student stayed in this one house that had like nine beds or something like that yeah it was totally worth it and i i had seen that house and it was also it was a ways away it was six miles away but still it was yeah that's that's a good deal yeah, And exa- if you're a student then that's nothing oh uh, right yeah exactly it was really nice um and my place was some swanky like you know one of those downtown industrial area remod things and um they've got like a little canal system and stuff that it was connected to my building so like i walked to the canal every morning it was super fun
1: nice <laughs> yeah
0: i <laughs> mean all the other retired old ladies and their dogs so it was a it was a good time um <laughs> i don't think i've ever i've been to indiana heck i just got back from indiana not a couple weeks ago on a sampling trip but i don't think i've ever been to indianapolis
1: I've just driven through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I went to, I also, another first has nothing to do with the conference. I went to a cat cafe. Because oh. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so for those of you that don't know what these are, they're cafes, literally, that have like adoptable cats that hang out in them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. It was terrible. You would have hated it. My husband would have hated it. I kind of even hated it, and I love cats. It was real stinky.
1: <laughs> I, say, I, I enjoy my breweries with dogs in them, so.
0: Uh Yeah, I will take that as well. Um, Yeah, it was a little bit stinky, and um, you had to pay to go in to pet the cats, which is fine, because it goes towards feeding them, um, but I went at a bad time. Well, it's probably always a bad time to go in to see a cat and make it play with you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so they were all just sleeping, and there were some weird people that were in there that I didn't really want to talk to, so I just kind of I played with this one little kitten until she collapsed of boredom. <laughs> and I was like, all right, <laughs> peace out. <laughs> so that was weird. Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting.
0: <laughs> I know, and usually, like, I took a morning off because I was at the conference cover to cover and I needed to focus because you know my student stuff was at the very end and I never take days off you know I've gone to the coolest places like Seattle and Vancouver and I have this sick sense of duty and so I'm never not at the conference so I felt real guilty about going to the cat cafe but (laughs) you know
1: you definitely shouldn't. I've I <laughs> discovered, especially on conferences like AGU that are marathons, if you don't take an afternoon off or a morning off here or there, you go crazy. I
0: know. And it's like I, I almost punished myself by getting out, um, you know, the schedule and looking at what I missed. I'm like, why am I doing this? Like I'm not even going to plan for this morning. I'm just going to take this morning and I'm going to do this. And it was, despite the fact that it was a gross cat cafe, <laughs> 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 it was it was fun and I definitely needed it because I have notes and notes and notes of stuff that I went to see. Um so it was a really a really productive meeting. I had a lot of fun.
1: Well excellent. So I, I think that's what I'd like to hear about anyway, is what are some of the cool things that you saw at GSA who, who are we going to be interviewing soon
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I mean it, actually I saw a bunch of people we've already interviewed so sorry <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I definitely have a lot of names starred some of them I ran up to with my wad of stickers and was like I do a podcast can you come on it <laughs> 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 so I definitely did a lot of that um I got to, if we have people listening that remember our show with Dave and Lauren Hirschap, who um, invented a compass, you know, I talked to Dave, and it was real cool because he was working the Brunton booth, because he works for Brunton now, and um, a whole bunch of people at the booth, I was talking to him and they're like, oh, you're the don't panic girl, that's awesome, and they all got real excited, and so I gave them stickers, and I felt like a superstar. (laughs)
1: very nice yeah
0: it was it was really good they're like that podcast is awesome (laughs) um so it was super fun um we did that i went to a whole bunch of planetary talks actually just because there's a lot of good planetary science that goes on at gsa i don't know if it's one of the most active subgroups of gsa so if you don't know there's in AGU and GSA both you know there's a whole bunch of these little subgroups that you can belong to just so you can sort of be closer to your community and they'll have maybe some of them will have like presidents and they'll have newsletters and stuff like that um, and the planetary group at GSA is really active so that's actually a lot of the talks I went to which we'll talk about here in a minute um, and then I also for the first time went to a field camp directors meeting so that was really interesting and that took up Near, well, it did take up a whole afternoon because they had a field safety section after that um, that they haven't done before. And I think they're going to try to make it a, a thing that they do every year. Um, and so that was real interesting.
1: Interesting. So this how was, how was it taught?
0: <laughs> oh, well, I think because this year it was um, the first year they've ever done it. And so it was a lot of, they had a lot of people who had had bad accidents happen come up and talk. Um, So that was, it was, it actually, I left really rattled. It was kind of a, like a, I don't know, it was a very cathartic and weird experience. This past year um, at Auburn, two students were hit by a car while they were working in the field. Yeah. Um, So Auburn's field camp stays around, Auburn for a week or so and then takes off, and they were in that week or so, so they were real close to home, and they were on this outcrop road cut that they've been on for 20 years, he said, and a car blew out a tire and lost control, a pickup truck, and struck the students, and one of them will be okay, is still kind of recovering, but one of them died, and so I remember getting that email while I was at camp this year, and it was real you know, shaking, nobody wants to hear this. Um, And so it was interesting because it was a field safety, but there was nothing that could have been done about this. You know, it was a complete freak of nature, right? Right. So it was just, I think it was cathartic for that professor to get to talk about, but also to say, which is stuff that you don't think about. He said, you know, we did a whole lot of, we did all the safety, right? This was this crazy freak of nature. And he said, but here's what I want you to know about my mental state at the time. And he was, he's a veteran. He's been in Afghanistan. So he's like, you know, I'm used to seeing bad things happen and think that I would be okay in a crisis. And he said, but I wasn't mentally as sharp as I would have wished I would have been during it. So a lot of stuff came out of that. Like, you should have a list. something happens so you have something to read so you don't have to think so that was interesting and definitely not something that we have um was probably 50 52 on having students and professors um medical information and so like you know we have forms that they fill out but we don't keep them with us in the cars but they they mean things like what medications are you on? Is there anything like an EMT would want to know? And so. Right,
1: exactly. Any, any allergies, whatever medications you're on, any pre existing conditions, right. all that stuff. Yeah.
0: As you know, being a volunteer fireman. Um, and also, you know, if the student's incapacitated, there's all these FERPA laws and all this stuff to get around. And so, um, he said that, and a lot of other field camp directors, they all talked about this together. Um, So what they do is have all that information in sealed envelopes and then put all of them in one big sealed envelope. So it never gets released unless you need it. So that was something that um, a lot of people said that they were going to just for situations like this. So that was interesting. But the person who put on the whole thing, and so there's a bunch of other people that talked about accidents that were real tragic, and it was kind of was real sad um one thing that I didn't think about but makes total sense is that over half the accidents that occur at field camps because they try to keep data on this um happen not in the field and so that's good because it's a testament that field camp directors and people that teach at field camps are really good at drilling in safety in the field and so students are always paying attention but it's that 50 percent when they're not in the field And maybe they are still outside, you know, that they kind of let their guard down and bad stuff happens. So I thought that was an interesting statistic.
1: Yeah. I could definitely see how it could happen as Mm -hmm. well.
0: And the, um, the person that put it on, um, Kevin Bohacks, he is, he works for Exxon and he does an Exxon field thing and he played this 20 minute video and it's really interesting. So Exxon does a whole lot of field geology um, both for people just from Exxon, but they also take students out every year. And it's a real big recruiting tool if you get invited to an Exxon, uh, an Exxon mobile field experience. And so he said that they will run, they have a very serious safety protocol, obviously, you know, corporation. And right. so he said that they'll run actual, um, they'll run actual field, uh, not demos. I don't know what the word I'm I'm looking like, for. Like a drill. Drill, or? drill, that's the word. <laughs> so they'll have field accidents on purpose out there, but they don't know about it to see if they're gonna react correctly. So it was really interesting. He said they were on this week long field trip and they knew they were gonna have a drill sometime, but they didn't know what it was gonna be and when it was gonna happen. And he said they got out to the field and they saw this camera crew at an outcrop. <laughs> and so <laughs> Yeah, so they knew it was gonna happen then. Um, and it was 20 minutes long, but it was great. And he gave it to all of us, and I'm completely going to play it in class. And it's real long and drawn out, but it's real good, too, because they took that drill all the way. Like somebody backed off a cliff while trying to take a picture, which is, could totally happen. And um, so they simulated this woman uh, getting a concussion and breaking her arm and twisting an ankle and then having a laceration. And they went through this huge thing and they actually called in search and rescue and they were in Utah. And so like they had to climb down and then rigger up and this harness and pulley system and stuff. And it was real intense. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So that was (laughs) my first day. There was real filled up with all of this stuff. And I came out with tons of notes and, you know, and also after talking to people, seems like my field camp's doing a good job, so that's good. But um, I'd love to hear from any listeners because I know we have a lot of people that do field work um, in any kind of setting for you know academics or for um, company setting and just see what their safety protocols, like their best practices that they use are. Um, because it was a real sort of eye-opening experience and I think a lot of people got a lot out of it. So yeah, that was the... That was the biggest thing, and I think the GSA is going to try to make it a yearly thing and kind of a bigger deal, expand it out. Because as a geologist, you're always leading field trips, whether you're a field camp director or not. And so it's the same set of protocols that should apply anytime you have people out in the field.
1: So was there any talk of having the students go through, like, a first aid and CPR class?
0: There was talk, and it was real... Um, it was real interesting because one of the guys that was leading it said that he has started to devote his, they have a field course like I do in the spring that we always talk about, and he said that almost a third of his course is him teaching safety um, because he got, he said, for cost effectiveness, he is certified to teach CPR and everything, and he said one of the outcomes of their field course in the spring is that they come out with certifications.
1: That's fantastic, I think.
0: I think so, too. Um, I think it makes it a little more real, but not in a scare tactic kind of way.
1: Yeah, and if you're not a student, uh, most local fire departments or police departments uh, or maybe even your employer offer free first aid and CPR training. I really would encourage you to go do it.
0: The The first one that I ever went to was offered through my son's daycare. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so that was real interesting because I got infant CPR certified too um, just because it was offered there, so that was, that was really neat. And then our department ran one this last year before camp, um, and it's definitely something that I'm going to insist that, all of my instructors and my TAs have. So definitely, it's not something that we have done in the past, but I think going forward, that's got to happen. And I've actually looked up some outdoor wilderness schools that give you know outdoor wilderness certification. And then the guy from Exxon that does it, he actually tours around and will come give you um, wilderness first aid training too. So it was. I don't know, it's not something that's ever been in the minds of people, I think, but um I really like the idea of having someone come to class and the students walking out with a certification. I think that's really a great a great attitude to inculcate to, you know, future geologists.
1: I agree. That's that's awesome. That sounds like a great thing. I'm glad that they're mm-hmm. doing that.
0: Yeah, it was really cool. Um so that took up a lot of my first day, but um, I got a lot, of, a lot of great feedback, and um, we talked a lot about how curriculums work at field camps and how a lot of them are changing and things like that. So that will be something we'll follow up with for sure in the future, especially as field camp gets closer.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> but um, besides that, yeah, there were so many talks, and this is the first time that I did not get a printed book I worked solely off of the app, and I was very proud of myself.
1: How did the app work?
0: Um, the best that it's ever worked, I will say. <laughs> um, so it's really hard to look at. If you've been to a conference, you know how they the book is all the titles and sessions. And there were, I think, I heard seventy seven hundred people at this meeting. Seventy five hundred was a bunch. <laughs> and so that's a big deal and so how you used to plan out your day is you'd go through the book and you'd highlight stuff and you'd have to flip back and forth and do everything and then they came out with an app but it's really hard on your phone to take in the scope of all the talks and posters, I think so yeah, that was hard to do but this year it worked really well syncing between your website account and your phone before, it's never really worked, so you could pick stuff out on online on your computer, but it would never sync to your phone app, and this year, it was beautiful.
1: Interesting.
0: Yes, and so like at night, the night before, I'd sit in front of the computer, and I'd pick out all my schedule, and I could even write notes in there, too, little bitty notes, and they don't save the notes, but it'll save as long as you're online, like on the GSA, as long as you're connected to them. And so all that saved and went straight to the computer, and it was amazing.
1: That's pretty nice. Uh, normally, like at AGU, I still do – or last time I went, I still did the paper stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did AMS last year as a digital schedule. Unfortunately, the app was not as good. Hopefully, it'll be more like your experience this year.
0: Yeah, and this is probably – I don't know for sure, but at least the fourth or fifth year they've had the app. So they've had it for a while, but this year it was seamless. Like I couldn't have asked for anything more really with the app. So I was real, real happy with that. And plus you don't have to carry that big book around.
1: Yeah, I with AGU like I would normally do the the daily newspapers.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'd
1: swing by, get a newspaper, and then go to breakfast and sit there and go through it and figure out what I was going to go see.
0: I'm not going to get up that early. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> do I know you?
1: Ah, <laughs> eh, fair. I like to have my AGU breakfast at about you know six or six thirty. Oh,
0: I didn't even know there was a six or six thirty in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I did, I did this at midnight every night. <laughs> There's one of those? <laughs> you see, exactly. It's like noon, <laughs> but it's dark.
1: <laughs> oh, so like 4 p.m. now.
0: Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> I got so hosed, and I'm so angry, because I traveled from Central Time to Eastern Time on the weekend of rolling the clocks back, so I just feel like I got gypped out of my extra hour. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you did. Yeah, I was
0: so <laughs> upset about that. I didn't realize that because when I was in Indiana a few weeks ago, they're in Central Time Zone in Northwestern Indiana, but just the top part.
1: <laughs> oh, there, there's some subtleties to that time zone boundary that are. They're really infuriating. Is.
0: Yeah, and like Southern Indiana is also Central, so it was real weird. But
1: except one place where it's not. I know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that was. Uh, Your planning experience, but what were some of the talks that you saw that you enjoyed?
0: Man, so I went and I sat in, and this is where most of my starred people are. Um, It was a session called Friends of Hoth. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, And so it was about icy moons. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, it was super good. Um, And so our buddy Mike Malaska was one of the presenters. Um, Oh, great. Yeah. And so he talked about the hydrocarbon cycle on Titan, like he did on our show, um, but also a lot about the sedimentary structures that we see there. And so anyone that's listened for any amount of time knows I'm obsessed with Titan. We've done several fun papers about it. Um, And so he talked about how to create the little hydrocarbon sediments that make up all these dune fields. So both in terms of fluvial systems on Titan and in terms of aeolian transport, so transport through the air, just from the little grains banging around, um, creates smaller grains, and that's what sort of feeds these dune systems. Um, and so there are a couple of, not just Mike's talk, but there were other talks in that session that were about different aspects of Titan.
1: Interesting. mm mm-hmm.
0: and when you're talking about transport... So there are these radar bright spots that look like rivers, like they're shaped like rivers, (laughs) you know, at the mouth of them is either there's a lake or something that looks like a lake. (laughs) And so there was a student, it was his master's thesis and this was so cool. You would have already built one if you had seen (laughs) this. (laughs) And he made this thing. And so Um, In sedimentary geology, we're really concerned about what shape the particles are. So if you have like a really rounded grain, it means that it traveled a long way, okay? Um, If you've got little pointy grains, it means they probably haven't traveled a long way from their source. And then you're also concerned about grain size distribution. So does your system have grains that are all the same size? Do you have a wide range of sizes like you would in like a braided stream? Um, Or do you have a narrow range of sizes, like in a sand dune? And so what this student was doing was so cool. Um, He was taking chunks of ice, just square ice cubes, and he was tumbling them, basically in this very specific laboratory-made rock tumbler. And he was trying to do this to see... You know, what cold, icy clast would look like after being tumbled for some time. Because these radar variations that they see in these fluvial systems on Titan are affected by grain size distribution and shape. So if you have something that's all jumbled up in a lot of different sizes, it's going to be this radar bright thing versus like a flat, smooth surface like a lake, which will be a radar dark thing. And okay. So <laughs> so he did it at low temperatures cuz it's ice. And he tumbled all these ice cubes and he comes out with all these rounded ice cubes. Okay, not surprising. But he said there's something wrong with this with his experiment because it wasn't happening at Titan temperatures. So they rigged this elaborate <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> this real elaborate like liquid nitrogen cooled apparatus around their tumbler and so they started this experiment again at like mm, I don't know I think it was like 10 degrees C somewhere around there he did a whole bunch of them but the one he showed and he started out with these square blocks again and before they turned into round blocks all the same shape now this time at lower temperatures it broke into this huge amount of grain sizes And shapes, same exact thing, except they lowered the temperature down from ambient earth temperature to, like, 10 degrees C. Huh. Yes, the same... So it's
1: changing something about the mechanical properties and how it breaks apart and weathers.
0: Exactly. And it's, like, I guess it's not super surprising, but the pictures were so different, and it seemed to match... Very well with what they think is actually happening on Titan. And he called it the Titan Tumbler. It was real cool. (laughs) But what I loved about it so much was like, this is science happening. It's just people tinkering. And this is the importance of being a maker and knowing how to machine stuff like this. I mean, not even like the actual machining like you do, but just knowing what's possible. You know, oh, well, we can rig this up with this thing Um, you know, to help lower the temperature inside this barrel. So it was real cool. Um, I liked that talk a lot. He did an excellent job. All right. Yeah, and the last one for Titan was something that we talked about a lot when we did our solar system series. And it is the Dragonfly, which is one of the um, (laughs) yeah, proposed Titan sampling missions, which is a little uh, drone. And there were some awesome videos.
1: <laughs> so, right.
0: Yeah. We're definitely going to want to get the Dragonfly team on, <laughs> on the podcast because it looked so cool. And this little UAV is going to carry, I have the star to make sure to tell you, it's going to carry a geophone. Ooh. Yes. So they have a geophone and a weather instrumentation package that they're going to put on this little drone.
1: That will be – and so there's also some work uh, with the more sediment-type folks using geophones to try to figure out things like flow and bed loads.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: So there might be some really cool things you can pull out of that data.
0: That is super cool. Uh, Yeah, one of the questions afterwards, which I thought was really funny, and somebody was like, well, is this going to be active seismic? (laughs) 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 Yeah, and so she was like, I would love it if this little drone would sit down and then, you know, just – shoot out a stick of dynamite but no it's just going to be passive
1: (laughs) it's active the next time we crash something into it
0: exactly (laughs) um so that was really cool that was that was where most of my um nerding out really took place like i spent a lot of time in those planetary sessions especially about titan just because yeah you know i'm obsessed with that (laughs) right (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. um Some other things I saw, I I watched all of our OU students. A lot of them gave talks. We only had a few posters, and they all did really well, and that was fun. Um, And then I looked at a lot. I went to a lot of climate talks, and I won't spare you the grisly details because climate people are very detail-oriented. There's a lot of isotopes, and I'm not a chemist, so, eh.
1: Dell eighteen oh something. Oh
0: uh, yeah, there's a C in there too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but one of the most interesting aspects I think about climate, and I think this is what um I'm in the middle of writing a couple of shows for us coming up that sort of delve into this a little bit, um, is the orbital parameters and how To change climate, you have to look at all the forcings. So what are the big-scale, large-scale things that make large-scale changes in Earth's systems? And orbital parameters are some of the forcings for climate. So is Earth far or near the sun in our orbit? Because we're elliptical, right? What is the precession? What's our tilt? And all of those factors combine in different ways to create um, different orbital cyclicities and so recording those cyclicity signatures in the rock record is hard (laughs) but it's also but it happens in places like where you're depositing a whole bunch of carbonates so if you're depositing in an ocean and you've got this really systematic rock record that's occurring so you don't have a lot of stuff that's eroding it right it's just constant sedimentation you can start to record these orbital parameters and these are big things on the scale of 200,000 or 20,000 40,000 405,000 years um and so that was i went to a lot of talks about that because i find that really interesting
1: right i mean there are places in southern oklahoma where you can see the milankovitch cycle for example right Right, exactly
0: and um There's actually a lot of modeling that goes into this, so I'm very surprised that I like it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because we can model these orbital parameters really well, right? I mean, you can... There's the Orbital Mechanics podcast. Like, we know a lot about orbital parameters. um, And sometimes the rock record doesn't exactly match up. There's cyclicity that appears in different periodicities, like this weird 2.4 million year cycle, and they can't figure out what what it's recording. Um, so things like that are very strange, and there's very specific when tilt and precession and eccentricity all come together. Models say, "Oh, we'll record, you know, this in the rock record, and we absolutely won't see it." Huh? Yeah. So there's there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of strangeness. So that's something I would like to in the next month or so um, explore. And also, we say Milankovitch cycles. That's named after a scientist. Who had a really interesting history um so that's something that we will talk about too in upcoming shows all right yeah so
1: so titan and climate what else did you see
0: um well i went to see a lot of magnetostratigraphy i say a lot there actually wasn't that much but i tried to hit them all <laughs> <laughs> right it's a pretty small field so. yes exactly well especially it GSA. If we were at AGU, there'd be tons of magnetostratigraphy talks. Um, So,
1: for those that might not be familiar with it, what's magneostratigraphy?
0: I don't know, John. I'm not familiar with it. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's taking and looking at the rocks. And so, we're always trying to figure out ages of rocks, right? We want to know when stuff happened, whether it's an event or just when something got deposited. And so... There's relative dating, so the rock on the bottom came first, rock on the top came next. Or there's absolute dating, where you do stuff that people may have heard of, like lead, uranium lead dating. So you can say, instead of this rock came first, you can say, this rock is 5.2 million years old, and this rock on top of it is 4.8 million years old.
1: Both plus or minus seven million years.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so magnetostratigraphy is kind of a mix of both of these things. I guess it's actually a exact age-dating method. Um, because the Earth's pole flips over time, you can look at a sequence of rock and say which polarity are these rocks in. And you can look at that sequence if it's like normal, reverse, normal, and you've got some other age-dating on either side of it. So you're like, okay, these rocks are between 5 and 10 million years old. If you record all those polarity flips, you can make a stratigraphy out of it. You can make a column and say, compare it to what we know Earth's polarity is, and then you can figure out how old those rocks are.
1: Yeah, and the, the flips are, what, a mean of about a quarter of a million years or so?
0: Yeah, we're overdue, too. It's real scary. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for recent times, it's about that, but that's really um, it's really different over all of geologic time. We don't know why it flips or when it's very enigmatic, but it's definitely something McNeese stratigraphy has been used for a long time. And um, <laughs> it was actually pretty funny today. Uh, the student was giving a talk, not one of my students, but he was a master's student. And, boy, you knew he was primed for the question that I had. It was really great because he'd put this magnetostratigraphy talk not in a magnetic rock section, and I think he thought he was going to skate out of there with no questions. (laughs) And I asked a question that he very clearly had prepared for. It was pretty funny. I felt for him. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to tee this up for you because I know you're going to get asked this. And he had a very practiced answer that was that was fine it was a perfectly great answer but it was real funny you could tell he was like oh thank god i know the answer to this one
1: <laughs> that's my first agu talk you know you see that hand to go up in the, the question session You're like, oh i hope this is a softball <laughs> oh gosh it was so terrifying
0: <laughs> i remember one where i just gave up and my advisor answered it from the front row I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty funny um that was really, that was really the uh, the extent of what I did. I just did a lot of planetary talks, a lot of climate talks, a few magnetostratigraphy talks, and then obviously I spent a lot of time at the OU booth, um, trying to recruit students, handing out tons of "Don't Panic" stickers.
1: Awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so hopefully we get a lot of new listeners. Um, I keep going back to that kid that told me podcasts were for old people, but there was a lot of young people that were really excited <laughs> about this podcast.
1: <laughs> so you were you were manning the booth a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but did you get a chance to go around the vendor area other than to run over and say hi at the Brunton booth?
0: <laughs> um, not a ton of time, actually. I was a little bit sad about that. Um, yeah, it wasn't until this afternoon that I... Went around, And by that time, um, everyone was kind of closing up shop. So I was a little bit sad. I did make time to go over to EM River, which is a company that makes stream tables. So maybe people have done this back in the day in their geology classes or they've seen these things. And so they set up these huge tables that circulate water and they put media in those tables. I say media. It's not actual sediment. It's these very specific and ridiculously expensive (laughs) little pieces that are color-coded by density and so then you simulate a river system and it's real fun
1: (laughs) all right so is this (laughs) it is it used in research applications commonly I, i know of a few stream tables but they're huge
0: uh yeah so these aren't the mega mega ones although they do sell pretty big ones um so the one that we actually, we have one at OU. This is why I went to go visit them, because I just ordered new parts for it, and I wanted to see how to put them on. <laughs> and, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so the one that we have is probably 8 foot long and mm, three and a half foot wide. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's pretty good size. The one that they had set, they had a bigger one set up that was probably 10, 10 by 4. And, like, they do intense stuff. So they had, the one they had set up, um, you know, they've got digital flow meters. These are all research grade. You don't have to have a digital flow meter. You can just have an on and off switch. Um, But they've got digital flow meters. And then they also have, (laughs) this is real cool. So these are aluminum boxes that are at a tilt that you can control in most cases. Um, Right. And... They have a rail on the side of them now, so you can put your little camera to like record stuff. Yeah. Um, In the bigger research ones that I've heard about, some people have put LiDAR above it and they just let this experiment run and they run that LiDAR over it and they can start to make 3D block models of these river systems. Right. So that's really fancy. Um, <laughs> this was great. I walked by there today and there was a whole bunch of people and they were staring like with their faces, maybe 10 inches from the, <laughs> from the surface <laughs> of it. And I just walked up to the middle of him and I said, what are we watching? <laughs> and it was <laughs> great. And It was funny because Mike Malaska was in the middle of this group of people.
1: Oh, and he great. said,
0: we've been here for 20 minutes. And what they were doing was they'd created this really curvy river. And so that doesn't always, nature doesn't like that because that takes a lot of energy to go around those curves, right? So eventually a river will cut through those curves. It, it creates a chute bar, and then the curve gets abandoned and becomes a lake, right, an oxbow lake. And so they were waiting <laughs> for this to happen. And I, there was 10 people like I said, with their faces right there. And you could watch like each little grain fall down and they kept waiting for it to go. And it was real funny because when it eventually did what happened, and this is great because I'm sure this happens in nature. And instead of, you know, that little chute naturally opening up, that big chunk of sediment that came down, like forced this wall of water down the river. And that's what kind of, just blew out that whole meander loop that they had set up so carefully (laughs) and was waiting for it to, like, naturally evolve. Instead, they sort of made this disaster of water that came through and and wiped it out. And I think they were all really upset about it because they had, you know, created what they had hoped was going to happen, and they all were like, oh, and it happened. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so it was really funny. But it was also a good analog for, you know, that stuff happens in nature, so... You expect this river system to do one thing, and actually upstream you have this disaster that occurs um, that affects the whole system downstream. And so it's fun that playing in this big sandbox is science.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I've been watching some of the videos on their website uh, this They make some pretty cool stuff. And they make a flume that puts the flume that I used as an undergrad to shame.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, they do. Um, oh, I love the flume. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyone should go check out these YouTube videos. So just the EM, EM River. That's exactly what they're called. And the coolest part is they hand out these pencils and pens that have... <laughs> centimeter scales on the pencil (laughs) so it has like little blocks that is a uh, nine nine centimeter scale and then they also have a little grain size in millimeter scale directly on your pencil and the guy gave me a whole handful of them and they're the best field pencils there are
1: that's great i I need to combine the 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 scale from my hail ruler onto my 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 pins now
0: exactly yeah i'll be looking for that in the mail please (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that was that was the best um that i saw there's a whole lot of microscope demos that i walked around with my mouth hanging open because i can't afford them but they were real nice too right (laughs) yeah and then the uh the lady that was taking thin section photos and printing them on leggings that that booth (laughs) was a big hit (laughs) so yeah
1: all right cool well, it sounds like GSA was a fun and productive experience for you.
0: It was. It was really good. I had a great time this year. I can't wait for next year. It's going to be in Phoenix. And I talked to some people, and hopefully Phoenix is going to be even bigger and better than Indianapolis. So,
1: All right. Well, are, are, so are you done with conferencing for 2018?
0: For 2018, yes. Um, GSA has a lot of regional conferences, too, and they're actually combining three different sections into a big regional conference, um, and those abstract deadlines are next month. So I'm sending one of my students to that. So while I'm done actually traveling, um, that conference will be coming up in the spring.
1: All right. But, yeah, but that'll so. be in 19. so...
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. This is the end of my 2018. No AGU for me this year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Me either. Uh, so we're, I think until January when I will be in Phoenix for the American Meteorological oh. Society meeting.
0: <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, well, well, you can give me the layout of the land then.
1: <laughs> yeah. And given how close Phoenix is, maybe I'll pop down to GSA next year.
0: Yeah. I hope so. That'll be fun.
1: All right. Well, I think it's time to Buzz on over to everybody's favorite segment of the show. (laughs) Fun Paper Friday.
0: Yay. There's
1: a little hint.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Where did you dig this (laughs) one up? (laughs) It,
1: uh, yeah. So, towards implementation of mosquito sterile insect technique. The effect of storage conditions on survival of male mosquitoes during transport. And yes, I skipped the Latin in there. <laughs> this is by Chung et al.
0: This et al. list is like a planetary mission, too. There's <laughs> like 15 people on this paper.
1: Yeah. So well, you know a bunch of these people were the uh the undergraduate assistants that had to the, count all of these mosquitoes under microscopes.
0: The, the mosquito wranglers. Right. <laughs> Oh, this is a ridiculous paper. So, I, was actually I mean, talking... it's not ridiculous. Like, it's for real. This is real research. Right. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I
1: was talking to my wife about it before uh, we were recording. And, you know, did you do the thing in high school bio where you were breeding fruit flies and looking at eye color and other characteristics and you would have to uh, knock them out and then Absolutely. count them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this reminded me sort of of that. But in this case, what they're trying to do is use this technique called sterile insect technique to get rid of these disease-carrying mosquitoes. And the idea is you release a bunch of sterilized males of whatever insect you're trying to eradicate into the natural environment. They compete with the wild males for mating with the females, and they're sterile. So... No babies, no babies. Eventually, you can kill off the entire population.
0: Yeah, I am. I am pro this research. I'm a mosquito magnet. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is yeah. This is real good. Um, the methods in this paper, again, they just keep getting better and better. So,
1: so uh, well, one of the hindering things to using this technique is you have to get your sterile mosquitoes to where you're trying to fight the wild mosquitoes.
0: Mm -hmm. And they have to arrive there all strong and virile and ready to go or else they won't get mates because they're going to be, you know, sad and pathetic and can't fly. And so one of the limiting factors, which I didn't know, is that male mosquitoes can't fly very far.
1: Yeah, so some other insects it said could fly kilometers – uh yeah, five hundred meters is kind of tops.
0: Uh yeah, that's unbelievable. It said the average flight range is twenty-five to two hundred meters. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> so not only do you have to sterilize them, but you've got to get them to a bunch of different places in order to like cause full collapse of that ecosystem in terms of mosquitoes, um, which obviously they're gonna do this with drones, right? <laughs>
1: Oh, yes. So drones are the way to, <laughs> to spread them, they've decided. But you still have to get them from the lab to there unless you're culturing them on site, which is unlikely.
0: Mm-hmm. And yep. I
1: never have ever thought about the problem of how would I ship a box of mosquitoes?
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> you don't want your Amazon drone getting mixed up with this one, though. That's for no. sure. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so this is what this is about, is how can you best ship them, what temperature, what do you ship them in, how many mosquitoes per cubic centimeter. Or as they refer to the... it, compaction. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> and so how, how many can you compact together before they all die? <laughs> and then this is the cadre of undergrads because you have to run this experiment at different temperatures and different compactions and then of course you got to count the dead and the live ones and then you have to
1: actually put them through the worst test of all which is air
0: mail <laughs> hey but after they get out of there they get to go to the what was it called it was real great the little chamber where they get to live forever
1: oh yeah the, um, the, the
0: bug dorm <laughs> the bug dorm
1: yes the bug dorm. <laughs>
0: Ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I also
1: enjoyed that the uh, the food was that was used is a Smucker's product.
0: <laughs> yes. special kitty kitty cat food. It's it's capitalized. Special kitty cat food pellets <laughs> from Smucker's. <laughs> so <laughs> ad, ad, ad ad libitum, which I assume means as much as they wanted. Right. <laughs> And so the
1: first test they did was, well, what temperature should we ship these at? We know we want lower metabolic rates, so we want to cool them down so they're not as active, so they don't damage themselves or each other. So they tried from 7 to 28 degrees Celsius,
0: Mm -hmm. which, you
1: know, is pretty cold to pretty darn warm.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's what I thought. And out of those... um I guess I would have thought warm was better, but then you got to think you don't want them too, just like you said, too active, because if they're stuck in here together and they're bumping into each other, they're not going to come out nice and virile and ready to go. Um, And it looks like 14 degrees C was the optimum temperature for shipping.
1: Yeah, so all of them are about the same after they unpack them for 24 hours, but after 48 hours on to 96, the difference gets pretty large.
0: Right, yeah, Um, in everything but the 14 degrees C, you basically wiped out the whole population um, by 96 hours, which if you're traveling a long way with a little drone, you probably want them to live for a while.
1: Right, so (laughs) then they did some tests on uh, how many you should put in a chamber.
0: Uh, (laughs) So lots of... (laughs) Lots of papers are going towards these very elaborate supplemental files that are online, and this one is no exception and one you definitely want to watch.
1: The PDF is open access. <laughs> yes, go check out the material. So they did a couple different tests, and they found slightly different compaction ratios based on the different tests. Um, mm-hmm. But the one that the video's of, and my favorite, is <laughs> oh. they, they took a syringe capped off where the needle goes, poked a tiny hole in it so that air can get in and out. And then they had these poor undergrads count mosquitoes <laughs> into these <laughs> syringes and then just push down the plunger. Oh. And <laughs> they pushed the plunger down to one milliliter. So you've got one cubic centimeter of volume in that case. And they did it with 1040 and 240 insects in the tube
0: oh. <laughs> um, it was a terrible video it just looks so gross
1: <laughs> but even at uh, 240 you're yeah. not squishing them
0: no and it was odd because it said they actually came out better being more compacted in there because if you gave them too much room they all lost scales well, so uh, they lost their little wings and stuff like that. So you kind of want them to not move around.
1: Yeah, 240, they still lost some scales, and there's a little bit of peripheral wind damage, but they didn't find you know, detached legs or anything like that, <laughs> as they did with some of the others.
0: <laughs> I mean, can you imagine having to count 240 mosquitoes and then count every one of their legs? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, undergrads. That's what you get for going into biology. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and th- they did some other tests in a, uh, a different storage container with 800 mosquitoes per 10 cubic centimeters.
0: Ugh. Gross. <laughs> it's at a statistically significant decrease in survival at that many. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, that it makes sense when you think about it, but it's maybe not what you initially would hypothesize is that squishing them all in there together is a better survival rate.
1: Yeah, that's not at all what I thought. So then, after they did these lab tests, they actually made a few samples and did the did the air freight thing. Somebody on the other end had to do lots of again microscope work.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs> and uh, yeah, they they said that there's still some more research required in this area, but they have. The initial procedure, anyway, for shipping sterile male mosquitoes. Something that <laughs> nobody has ever thought about. I bet that's funded.
0: <laughs> exactly. But it it's like, what an important thing, though. Because if you went through this whole sterilizing all these guys and then going to release them, but then hadn't done this kind of research, and then you release a whole bunch of dead ones or a whole bunch of ones with missing legs, like, that's why... This paper actually has a very important place because you need to know this stuff before you go through with, you know, the final big push to help eradicate so many of these mosquito-borne diseases.
1: Absolutely, and this is going to be a new journal that I check for fun papers. It is the Journal of Insect Science.
0: <laughs> I love it. One of our postdocs that was at the um, at the meeting. Maybe we can interview. Um, his girlfriend is a postdoc that works on insect ecology. There I you was go. real excited. Yeah, I was real excited to hear about her her insect research. So, yes.
1: Well, hopefully this paper didn't bug you too much, but <laughs> I've <sighs> <laughs> been, been saving that <laughs> one for the last couple of minutes. So.
0: I bet you have. <laughs> 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 well, just, just get on that journal whenever the itch strikes you oh (laughs) i could go on all night i will stop
1: (laughs) but this was a this was a pretty out there paper but like you said something is pretty important if Mm -hmm. you have done your own research on how many mosquitoes can be compacted into your backyard (laughs) or other similar studies we would love to hear about it shannon how can folks get a hold of us
0: yeah email us a uh, show at com. we're on twitter at geo underscore lehman at shannon Doolin. together we're at don't panic geo uh you can find us in the slack chat room on the software underground the don't panic channel and as always thank you to our patreon supporters um for helping us keep going all these years
1: <laughs> and until next week remember don't panic
0: it's not an exact science